today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Thanks for listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, an apology has been issued by city staff in regard to the pavement on the Red Hill. A lot of what people thought was true. And who do Americans believe, their president or his security advisors? Is ISIS dead or not? And Canada is still trying to make a decision whether or not to take the Huawei 5G network. Is there really anything to debate at this point? It's all coming up on the show. Thanks for listening. An apology has been issued on behalf of uh, city staff. In an unprecedented move, the city of Hamilton has issued a public apology after documents were uncovered outlining a 2013 study that revealed that the Red Hill Valley Parkway uh, is more slippery than it should be. On behalf of the city of Hamilton, the staff apologized to council and the general public for how this matter has come to their attention. Apparently in 2013, an audit uh, of the expressway reveals that nearly all areas of the Red Hill uh, have friction values below or well below the recommended level. Uh, this from a trade wind scientific uh, who is doing the examination. Further examination on the pavement surface uh, composition and wear performance and more investiga- uh, investigatory work. Uh, the detailed information dated November 2013 was revealed for the first time to the General Issues Committee in a closed meeting on Wednesday night. To talk all about this, uh, Dan McKinnon is with us, General Manager, Public Works, City of Hamilton, and is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. So uh, give us an update here. Uh, what happens now? How did this all come to light? Well, I think you captured it pretty uh, succinctly there in your uh, intro. Uh, we became aware of uh, this document, this study that had been done a number of years ago. And um, uh, as a course of action, we brought it forward to council. Um, and once they were made aware of the information, uh, you uh, saw the release last night. That was Council's reaction to it, was they wanted the information brought into the public immediately. And uh, they made some other recommendations around um, our audit services group uh, conducting an investigation. And uh, we had already been undertaking a number of uh, safety audits and, and work on the, uh, on, on the expressway and the link uh, to a certain extent over the last number of years. Uh, so that work continues, and we've got a capital project uh, scheduled for June of this year where we're going to undertake a, what we call a shave and pave, where we remove the top two inches of the, the asphalt and, and we replace it with a new mix. So, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, as this story's kind of emerged, is that, you know, it's, it's interesting that over the last number of years there's been some anecdotal information about the, the Red Hill being slippery and and uh, certainly the collision data that we shared with council yesterday in a public report indicates that the numbers were rising around collisions and uh, there seems to be a, an emphasis on wet weather collisions. Uh, council had been reacting to this uh, uh, information kind of on a different channel around collision data and they've been asking us to do things over the years to, uh, to make the facility safer. So a lot of the things that you might have done in response to these low friction numbers were being done as a result of a direction that we were continuing to receive from council. So, um, so it's, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the the summary of how things have happened, but it it was really the information that was shared with the community last night was triggered by us sharing uh, this report with council last night. So how did, how did staff uncover this report? Were they backtracking and looking at past information and there it was, how how did that, how, how did this fall into their lap? Yeah, there's uh, there's been a, a pretty significant change in, in, in uh, the leadership of Public Works over the last number of years, and that's really more related to kind of the, 
the baby boom situation. I have six divisions under my uh, my leadership here in uh, public works, and over the last two and a half years, uh, the leaders of those divisions. I have five new leaders. So essentially, my department, my department management team, has completely turned over over the last two and a half years. And and so, in engineering services, uh, a new director started there in July, and as part of their uh, work to become familiar with all the issues and get involved in some of the projects, they became aware of this report. And uh, um, once they uh, did that, and they shared it with me, and I shared it with the city manager, and then that started the, the whole process. So. Um, any idea how this would not have come to someone's attention in the first place? Because clearly this has been an issue over time, certainly anecdotally, as you say. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think a lot of the answers that people are looking for right now will probably come as a result of the work that's going to be done by our audit services group. Um, they are, uh, you know, we, we get audited on a fairly regular basis, and they had already started an audit uh, in March of last year, uh, uh, unrelated audit uh, to do with our, our pavement surfaces and quality control and that kind of thing. And then as this emerged, um, um, they started asking questions and now they've had council direction to, to conduct an investigation into it. So um, I'm hopeful that, you know, a lot of the answers to the types of questions you're asking will become uh, evident over the next couple of months. I think they're expecting it could take them about two months to get to the end of it and then write the report. So uh, I'll say that I'm as anxious as anybody else to see what uh, what they find. Would someone have signed off on this report? I mean, uh, acknowledged it, filed it? I mean, would that not sooner or later come up in an investigation? Uh, I expect this will be uh, information that will be definitely uh, analyzed uh, through the audit uh, uh, experience here. And, um, you know, I can say that the the report was paid for. um, So, uh, you know... uh, to what extent it was finalized, I, it escapes me at the moment, but I know the report was paid for. So, um, but again, I you know that that kind of information uh, will be uh, thoroughly flushed out through the audit process. Uh, to me, there, there there's two issues here, Dan. One that the, the, this report is just coming to light now, and uh, the the other concern is how does this asphalt get put down in the first place? Well, that that's certainly a longer story. You know, the the, the type of asphalt that was put down. Um, originally was an asphalt that was a pretty popular mix, uh, both uh, certainly across the province of Ontario. There's other highways that have this type of mix put on it. Uh, and so it's not, uh, I don't think the city was doing anything, you know, unique in that regard. The stone mastic asphalt is the name of the mix that was put down at the time, and it was being used widely across the province. And uh, uh, But I think one of the things we'll learn through the audit process is uh, the, the ministry began to see some issues with it and and uh, I think our experience is consistent with maybe what the ministry was seeing. So, uh, but again, those are those are things that we'll, hopefully we'll get some definitive uh, answers to as the the audit process plays out. How long has there been an issue with this type of asphalt? Do you know? Um, well, it's, we certainly saw the friction results in 2014, so it certainly goes back that far. Um, I think there may have been concerns prior to that, um, kind of globally in the industry. But um, as far as the Hamilton experience, I can say with some some confidence that that report in 2014 certainly identified some issues then. How long before then? Uh, Again, I might be relying on the auditors to tell us that. Are we still using it, do you know? No, and that's one of the things that, you know, is important for as part of this story is that the Red Hill and the Link are very unique facilities. We don't have any other facility like that in Hamilton, and the mixed designs that were used there were unique to those facilities. 
Um, having said that, the, the link does not have any SMA on it. The, the SMA was used specifically on the Red Hill Valley Expressway for properties that were uh, believed to bring value. Uh, you know, for example, it was supposed to cut down on road noise, which, as you can imagine, would be an important consideration considering where the valley, mm-hmm. uh, where the valley is relative to uh, residential. It was supposed to cut down on spray. Um, so there was some attributes that it had that made it a, a, a popular choice uh, for for, the, for a variety of reasons. Um, but as uh, we've uh, evolved through time here, it's it's, it's become apparent that uh, you know the trade-off appears to have been that it, it doesn't uh, doesn't seem to maintain its frictional characteristics uh, in a, in a manner that we would have liked it to. Is there any reason to believe that the product is uh, an inferior product? So not so much the design or what it was meant to do or engineered to do, but the fact that it's just low-quality asphalt? No, I don't think so. I think there would have been uh, tremendous attention placed on the, uh, on, the, on the mixed design and the actual batching of the material and the way it was placed at the time. Uh, you know, I think the, uh, the quality control on site was probably very strong at the time. So uh, it was a premium aggregate that was uh, used to do it. And uh, I think there would have been, uh, and again, I, I wasn't on site at the time, um, but I, I think there would have been a heck of a lot of attention from a quality control perspective around the mixed design and that kind of thing. So when it comes to uh, uh, the question of, you know, did we get what we paid for? I, th- I, or, I think we did. I think all of that would have been uh, vetted out through the quality control process at the time. We had a good contractor, we had high quality material, that kind of thing. But um, at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, to, to use plain language, it's like you're baking a cake and the recipe for the cake made sense and all the materials that were used to go into the cake. It's, uh, but at the end of the day, the, you know, it seems like it, doesn't, it didn't turn out tasting the way we wanted it to. So, so that seems like, you know, uh, one of those mistakes you made, albeit a costly one, I guess. Um, uh, but why, why would you hide a report? And I'm not accusing you of doing that or anybody of doing that. But why, why would this not be wanting to, to be brought to the attention then? It, you know, I don't know the answer to that. And, and you know, you'll understand why I right. let the term hide the report. I, I don't know that that's no, what I, happened. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I think every day... Why it's just all... surfacing now. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I think... You know, at any given time, we have all kinds of studies that are um, taking place at the city of Hamilton on very technical issues. And, you know, we have uh, a large team of highly skilled professionals that use their judgment all the time. And so, uh, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I view this as a, as a judgment call at a moment in time. And, um, you know, I think that's going to be the question that, that we're going to have to sort of through the, through the audit process is, is, is maybe focused on a, a judgment call. So do you think it's a judgment call back then or just getting lost in the sauce? Uh, I don't think I understand that question. Well, or do you think it just got, it got lost, it got shelved, it got, uh, it just, you know, got caught up in the, in, in, in the office life. It just wasn't a priority. Oh, uh, yeah, possibly, possibly. Um, I think I'm going to defer to the skills of the auditors at uh, sussing those types of things out uh, when it comes to their report. I think they might have a more, uh, a more skilled interpretation of what happened than I did. Are you confident that uh, auditors will will have the questions that uh, that Hamilton uh, Hamiltonians have right now? I do. I uh, you know I my my background is water, um, and as a result of the events that happened in Walkerton a number of years ago, we've had we've had incredible scrutiny on our drinking water systems in Ontario over the last fifteen years. And I I'll, I'll say that I kind of grew up in that system. I'm very um, accustomed to being audited, and and uh, you know I, I I personally embrace the idea that as a learning organization, auditing is a very healthy thing to do. 
I'm very familiar with our auditors within the city here. And uh, notwithstanding, uh, you know, I'm a staffer here, but I think the community can have tremendous faith in the audit team that's going to be looking at this. Considering there has been so much uh, concern about, uh, about the highway, what do you want citizens to take away from this? Um, well, specifically about that highway, um, you know, I think the, one of the things that we do observe is, is driver behavior on both the Link and the Red Hill is, is a concern and remains a concern. And a lot of that uh, is going to be managed probably through uh, enforcement help with the police because we do see speeding as a, it's a continuous problem for us. Uh, so, you know, my, I guess my, 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 my statement to, to the users of the facility is, is the same advice I give my kids, you know, drive for the weather, don't speed pay attention um you know if, 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 if weather conditions change you drive the limit and you should have no concerns about using those facilities but i guess from the from the broader sense you know this is uh you know we, we there's a lot of people who work really hard every day in the city to to work in a manner so that residents can have faith and confidence in us and i think that you know when you when they hear information like this that faith and confidence gets shattered um or certainly jeopardized and that that's that's incredibly unfortunate because there's so many people here who believe in that concept that we need to be transparent and we need to work in a manner that generates confidence with the community. And I think we just took a giant step backwards, and we're going to have to we're going to have to work hard to repair that relationship with the community. So uh, the city responds. Uh, the highway uh, speed limit is reduced from 90 to 80. You said they're going to resurface the highway coming up this spring. Any idea what they'll replace it with? So there's going to be incredible attention on the new mix design that's going to be going in there, and we're, I'm very confident that the uh, the design staff we here we have here in engineering services they are doing uh, all the research, and there's going to be incredible uh, quality control uh, take place when that material goes down, and uh, there's going to be you know I'll be ensuring that there will be a very robust monitoring program going forward on both facilities, the Red Hill and the Link. Uh, you know, one of the changes that I made immediately when I came in here was to develop a it's a parkway management committee and it's, it's a small committee made up specifically of staff to make sure that staff in different divisions are talking to each other and working together to make sure that we manage that facility the way it needs to be managed for the very reason that it's, it's a one of a kind in Hamilton. It's, it's incredibly important to our community from an economic perspective and uh, it's, it's very unique. So it's going to take a unique uh, a set of uh, management practices to make sure that we're managing it properly. And, and again, I'll be informed, uh, I think, pretty comprehensively by what we hear from the uh, from the audit team when they go through their process. And uh, another consultant, a consultant in to take a look at medians and barriers and lighting and that sort of thing? Yeah, one of the reports that Council approved last night was uh, uh, to develop the terms of res- reference for a functional design. And this is really a forward-looking project to say, you know, if we're going to consider um, adding another lane to the link, if we're going to consider adding illumination and lighting of the link, and we're, if we're going to consider median barrier what does all that look like so we need to go out and we need to have a full comprehensive analysis done to say here's all the issues that you uh, would have to deal with and you know people may not appreciate if you want to put if you want to put lights on the length of the red hill you need to protect the bases you might have to put barrier walls and now that means you have to do a complete storm drainage assessment and re re, uh, reconstruct your storm management so one thing leads to the next and that's why we want to have a comprehensive study to say we know at some point we're going to have to widen the link. There's an interest in, in seeing what it would cost to light it. Um, there's an interest, obviously, because of uh, what's going on with respect to barrier walls and that kind of thing. So we want to sweep it all up into one comprehensive study so that we can bring back 
uh, a really a really con- comprehensive report to council so they can consider all of these things. And then if, uh, and if they want to move in that direction, then we can start to do it in a systematic way. Dan McKinnon is with us, General Manager, Public Works, City of Hamilton. An, an apology has been issued after city staff yesterday admitted that a report on the Red Hill uh, has been floating around since uh, 2013 now has uh, uh, been put on council's desk. Dan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The U.S. president has, I guess, for the last uh, several days been contradicting uh, what his uh, security experts have said, what uh, the leaders of those agencies have said. And uh, he continues to say there has uh, been significant gains against ISIS, uh, despite what his experts and uh, the intelligence uh, people have said and their fear of a resurgence. Uh, But going on, the president says the United States military, our coalitions and uh, partners and Syrian Democratic uh, Democratic forces have liberated virtually all of the territory previously held by ISIS in Syria and Iraq. It should be formally announced sometime in the next week or so. We'll have 100 percent of the caliphate, Uh, he said before cautioning that he wants to, quote, wait for the official word. Uh, to talk more about all of this, uh, Phil Gursky is with us, President and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, and is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No worries, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, th- uh, who is America to believe, the President of the United States or all of these tried and trusted leaders of these security organizations? Well, um, great question. If you you know, go to these fact-checking sites and, uh, you know, you look at how many times the president has said or tweeted something that is factually incorrect. It's, I mean, it's probably up in the tens of thousands in the past couple of years. So I, I just see this as an arrogance on, on behalf of President Trump. I mean, the intel community, the military has said categorically this is not over. I've seen estimates that there are still tens of thousands of Islamic State fighters in Iraq and Syria. So for him to say it's a remnant, boy, that's a pretty big remnant, and for him to say that it's over uh, is, is categorically false. I mean, yes, the caliphate is no more, and the territory they control is a, a mere you know, postage stamp of what it was, but that doesn't mean that, that the Islamic State as a terrorist group has ended. And so I, I, you know, as an old intel guy working for CSIS, surprise, surprise, I'm going I'm to side with the intelligence services over the president on this one. Um, you know, if you have a disagreement with these uh, intelligence services, if if you've got other information, apparently that they don't, um, that's one thing. Should these discussions not be held behind closed doors? I mean, what does it do for credibility when the president comes up and comes out and publicly says not only does he disagree with the information, but he thinks they should go back to school? Well, it's 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 catastrophic, and I have friends who work for the FBI, and I know people that work for the CIA, and I've reached out to them, and I've said, hey, why don't you come work for CSIS or the RCMP, because clearly your leader doesn't trust you. I, I don't know, Scott. I mean, you know, if you go to work in the morning at the radio station, your boss says, hey, Scott, you're a doofus, and you have no idea what you're doing. Do you want to go to work in the morning? So I, th- I think it's a morale issue. And uh, frankly, I don't think the president has information that the intelligence services and the military do not possess. I think he's making it up, and this is, I think, par for the course for this particular president. But yeah, you're absolutely right. This should be this should be covered in briefings. This should be covered, uh, you know, behind the veil of secrecy because doing it in the open uh, not only is wrong, but it, it has a real bad effect on the men and women who, you know, go to work every day. And you may have seen during the shutdown, 
know, the FBI was still going to work and making arrests and doing investigations, despite yeah. the fact they weren't being paid, which I think speaks to their professionalism or dedication. So when the, you know, when the, when the commander-in-chief says you're an idiot, that's uh, not helpful. So where is this coming from? Well, and not, you know, from, from his side, from a personal standpoint, but why making this decision now? What, is there any significance or any events that are going on that warrant this, this talk now? Hard to say, but recall that it was a campaign promise, right? And even before right. he ran for president, he did say that he thought that American forces should not be deployed around the world, that America should not act as the world's policeman, that America had spent bazillions and bazillions of dollars doing this. He promised to bring the troops home. He promised that they wouldn't have the footprint they did. So in a sense, this is a, a way to fulfill a, a promise that he made and has made repeatedly. So maybe there's more politics involved in this than anything else. I don't know, Scott. Is there more to it than this? It's, it's hard to say. Um, maybe there's intel that suggests that something big's coming. I don't know. But I, I do think this is a, a, a way for the president to say, I told you I was going to do this and I'm doing it. Uh, it seems over the last uh, few decades, uh, you, you know, you go in, um, you, you raise hell, and then you try to get out. Um, uh, haven't we learned that when we do that, it creates a vacuum and you're really just starting another one in some way? We should have sunk that, right? And if you go yeah. back, and you're absolutely, absolutely right. So, see, here's the problem with military deployments, is that military deployments in and of themselves actually create terrorism. Let's go back to 1979 when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan on one boxing day. That led to the creation of al-Qaeda. Ethiopian forces went into Somalia in 2006. That led to the creation of al-Shabaab. America went into Iraq in 2003. That led to the creation of Islamic State. So the mere fact that you decide to invade a country and, and fight whoever it is you're trying to fight, Saddam Hussein, I don't know, the Afghan government, whatever, creates more terrorism. And then, of course, once you're there you, and you pull out, you're essentially handing a victory to the terrorists. And as you said, you're leaving basically a, you know, a deserted battlefield and a vacuum in which other forces are going to come into play. So you would think that we would we'd be a little more judicious in our decision-making in the first place and not deploy massive 100,000-men armies to, to invade. And then, you know, because once you're in, it's almost impossible to get out. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Uh, how bold to say that this problem has solved? That's what he's alluding to here. Uh, that, is that not going to come back to bite him? Absolutely, just in the same way that it came back to bite... Uh, the Soviets and, you know, the, and the Obama decision to um, scale back Afghanistan. I mean, the Taliban controls half the country, and there's now the Americans are now actually having peace talks with the Taliban, which is a terrorist group. I mean, who would have thunk that two years ago? Yeah, I, I think the problem is, is that there's no question that Islamic State is not what it was five years ago. So go back to the announcement of the caliphate in, in the summer of 2014. The territory they control is one iota compared to what they did. So from that perspective, yes, the Islamic State has suffered greatly. But as I said, there are still tens of thousands of fighters out there. And not only that, Scott, there are Islamic State affiliates all over the world, ranging from the Philippines to Nigeria. And they've been carrying out attacks with alarming frequency. And then at a third level, you've got the Islamic State-inspired people. Like the guy in the Danforth last year, which Islamic State claimed, which probably wasn't Islamic State, but they claimed it. And then, of course, the guy in Edmonton a couple years ago who hit the police officer outside of Commonwealth Stadium, he had an ISIS flag. And then Rahab Dugbosh in the Canadian Tire. She was claimed she was ISIS as well. So, yes, the group has been decimated, to use the president's term, uh, but it's not over. And, in fact, it's been able to, I guess, almost create a force multiplier through the affiliates and through the people that think the Islamic State's a good idea and they want to act in its name. 
What should Donald Trump be doing here? You're, you're seriously asking me that? Where, where, where do we start? Hmm. Uh, number one, he should defer to his military and intelligence services. He shouldn't be going off and tweeting stupid statements like he did. Uh, he shouldn't be contradicting his intelligence and, and, law, and law enforcement agencies. Not to say that those are perfect. We're not perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. But, you know, when these people, I don't know if you saw the most recent intelligence threat assessment that came out, and that's the one that he took issue with. I mean, these are people that spend their lives doing this. They look at threats. Mm. They look at intelligence sources. They recruit sources. They analyze information, and they come up with the best assessment they can under the circumstances. I mean, that's done for a reason. These people don't do this out of the goodness of their hearts. It's because this is what they're supposed to do. So I think the president should be a little more modest, like that's going to happen, and basically not insult his people publicly and and pay more attention to what they're telling him, because they're there for a purpose, to advise the president to help him make better decisions. And when he ignores what they're saying from the get-go, he can't make better decisions. Uh, is this a done deal? Are they on their way out? I mean, what happens when when the presence is gone? Well, I don't know it's a done deal. Certainly there's been uh, some a bit of walking back by the American military since he made that statement. So I'm not sure where we are right now, Scott, whether something will happen and the president say, well, we can't go out yet kind of thing. And same thing with Afghanistan, right? He announced a withdrawal and, oh, well, we really didn't mean withdrawal. We're going to scale back, but we're going to stay there. It's hard to imagine a zero American presence. And in fact, Trump did say he wants to keep some troops in Iraq to, to take a look at Iran, yeah. which really pissed the Iraqis yeah. off. They said, excuse me, you're not using our territory to spy on a neighbor. So, you know, it, I, I say it's a wait and see. Watch this space. I'm not sure all this stuff is going. And I just hope the president has the maturity to say, you know, maybe I should listen to my intel folks and, and my military, because that's what I'm paying them for. How are others viewing this, specifically Russia? Well, this is kind of a a package with a bow on it for the Russians, right? Because, I mean, if the Americans pull out, the Russians have free reign. And they can work with their Syrian allies and their Iranian allies to do whatever the heck they want in Syria. So without an American presence or act as even a small buffer, this opens up the the space for for Russia to basically have a free-for-all. So if I'm Putin and I'm the Russian military, I'm rubbing my hands with glee right now thinking the Americans are going to pull out. So, you know, it's certainly to their advantage because... You know, they become the only sheriff in town with with their Syrian allies, and then boy, then then you wait and see the human rights abuses and the atrocities that are going to be committed by the government against the people that went against the Assad government. It's going to get real scary real quick. Is is Trump doing this more? Uh, do you think Trump has right uh, interest there uh, and, and interest in keeping uh, Putin happy, as opposed to you know my campaign promise was I'm going to bring these troops home. We're not going to interfere in anybody else's business anymore. God, I hope not. I, I hope this isn't tied to the allegations that, you know, the Russian uh, government... And, is this all just more distraction? It might be. I, I don't know, Scott. This whole presidency has been a distraction from day one, yeah. and it changes almost every minute. So it's really hard to track what all this stuff means. It seems to change with alarming frequency. And, and you know, what are the true motivations behind any of this stuff? I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't have a Ouija board in front of me. I don't have tarot cards. I don't know what this stuff means and what's going through the president's head, if anything. So, you know, it's possible, but it, 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 but it's impossible to nail that down at this point. Uh, it's easy to hear the frustration in your voice as a former intelligence person. What, how do you think they must be feeling? If you're in their job, what do you do? I don't know. You know, it's funny, because I, I, I met a woman once who was actually what they call the, there's something called the Presidential Daily Brief, or the PDB, and there's people that actually brief the president. It's about an hour long every day, 
and I knew a woman who was one of the briefers for Obama, and she went through what the process was like, and, you know, Obama was very studious, and he would take the intelligence and consider it and ponder it and ask questions, and it seems to me, and there was an interesting article in Time magazine that just came out about how, how different it is under this president. Yeah. So shorter sentences, more graphics, more, you know, getting his attention. Mr. President, sir, Mr. President, sir. So I don't know how you feel if, if you know, your, your job is to do, as I said before, the best job you can with what you've got, and you know walking in that you're not going to make much of a difference, if you even get the president's attention. It's got to be demoralizing. You've got to wonder, what am I doing this for? Why don't I just take a job at Starbucks or something? Because clearly <laughs> what I'm doing isn't important for the safety of the nation. Uh, checks and balances here. Where's the Republican Party on this? Well, it, interesting pushback uh, from what I've seen from certain congressmen and, and senators saying to the president, well, actually, this is not what our intel folks are saying. And, and I, I kind of side with them. So, you know, it's got us this, this constant battle, right, between do the Republicans criticize their president with an election coming up or do they kind of turn a blind eye to satisfy the base, to, to try to guarantee a re-election? You know, is anyone courageous enough to, to, you know, to say the emperor has no clothes? There are a few brave ones out there, but it seems that, you know, they're few and far between. And, and from what I gather, I'm not an expert on American politics, but it seems from what I've been gathering is that most of them are just content to, you know, kind of, you know, look, look at their shoes uh, rather than speak up against what's happening. So I think, it's, I think it's a responsibility. I think it's a responsibility of any American who, you know, thinks that the train is going off the tracks. But I don't think the Republican Party uh, is, the, is the one that's going to do that. Uh, Secretary of State Mon- uh, Mike Pompeo says that this is more of a tactical change. He says, quote, President Trump's announcement that U.S. troops will be withdrawing from Syria is not the end of, the Amer- of America's fight. Um, it just seems to be a war of terminology here. Well, yeah, I suppose. It's like we're picking apart words and, and, you know, clause by clause kind of thing. It seems to me if the president says we are withdrawing troops from Iraq, that means the Americans are withdrawing troops from Iraq. So if the secretary of state says, well, that's not what it means. I mean, I mean, what language are we speaking here? I mean, I mean, is the president speaking lower Slobovian that no one understands? I mean, it seems pretty categorical to me. What he says in English is pretty clear. So now we're, we're stuck with, you know, well, what he really meant, or I know it sounds that way, but I know the president well, and, and what he was thinking at the time was, I mean, like I said, this is, this is, this is no better than, than throwing darts at a board or you know, picking lottery numbers uh, in a sense of what, what, what does all this stuff mean. So it's, it's a little disingenuous as far as I'm concerned, and I think it's indicative, too, of maybe some people, and I'm not a big Pompeo fan, but it's an indication these people are, are embarrassed. They know the president is speaking off script. They know he's doing things that are, you know, deleterious to American national security, and they're trying to salvage something. That, this, is what, this is what I take from that kind of statement by Pompeo. Uh, should we be worried about the rhetoric or, or, or confident that there's systems, checks and balances in place to keep him in line? Well, that's the beauty of the American system, right? Is that, you know, ever since the beginning, you've got several levels, and, and as you said, there's checks and balances, and, you know, this is not a dictatorship, and the president doesn't always get his way, so let's hope that there are adults in the room who understand the situation, who take the intelligence and, and military folks at their word and heed their advice and make good decisions and somehow back the president into, into a corner where he can't do what he says he's going to do. So I, I have some faith in the American political system that uh, that's the way it works. And uh, let's just hope going forward that that, uh, that keeps going that way. 
Uh, many had a different impression after the, the State of the Union address. Uh, since the beginning of this presidency, people have been waiting for the president to start acting more presidential. Um, do you think this is just all more of the same, or is this getting worse? Well, that's, you know, that's a really good question. I didn't watch the State of the Union address. I've, I've got almost a no-Trump policy in my house. I try to... <laughs> anybody talks about Trump, you're showing the front door. Um, so... It's hard to say it's getting worse when it's as bad as it is. You know, as I said, you look at fact check, you look at all these websites that talk about whether the president has any relationship with the truth, and it's not looking good. And, and every time something happens, we, you know, everyone says, oh, this is it. This is the thing that's going to unravel the Trump yeah. presidency. This is the thing that's going to lead to impeachment and blah, blah, blah. And yet the next day it, something else comes out and it's like squirrel. We go on to something else. So I, I don't know, Scott. I, I don't know that this makes much of a difference in the grand scheme of things. And then, of course, you know, in the, in the overshadowing all this, of course, is the Mueller probe and what that's going to show us in the, in the days and weeks to come. So it's almost like a soap opera, but a soap opera would that mean something as opposed to, you know, what you watch on, you know, midday after Monday afternoon when you're having a nap on the couch. Um, this guy is playing with, with, with serious funds and serious military forces and serious consequences, but it's just like a, I don't know. It, it, it's really hard to put your finger on. And I, I, like I said, I just hope at the end of the day, the system works the way it is, and people with some level of maturity and, and a relationship with facts and truth are the ones that went out. Because if, if the president goes through with a lot of what he said, uh, we're going to be in a heap of hurt. Because, you know, leaving a vacuum in Iraq, in the same reason we left the vacuum in other places, just leads to problems down the road. Will America ever be the same after this presidency, or will, you know, another four years, it's a new life? That's another good question. I mean, you could certainly have asked the same thing after the Bush presidency, a Bush too. A lot of people didn't think very highly of, mm. of the second Bush in terms of his intelligence or his policymaking. They may go to Obama, which is a very different kind of president, a very cerebral president. I think Americans are relatively... Uh, flexible. I think they will rebound. But on the other hand, you also got, from what I've been reading, um, you know, a, a, an increasing entrenchment of, of polarization, right? Um, you're either Republican or Democrat. There's no middle ground now. Mm. And, and the polls are showing, and this is kind of scary, that Republicans see Democrats as evil people and vice versa. So now you're getting families split, you're getting communities split. I don't think the polarization is good, but Hopefully this is just a blip on, on the radar. Hopefully Trump does not win again in the next election. We get somebody else, although the Democrats are doing their damnedest to put forward. Can you name one of the candidates the Democrats yeah. are putting forward yeah. that yeah. gains any kind of confidence from the United, American people? So, again, I have my faith in Americans that they're going to get over this, but it might take time to undo the damage as well. There's been a lot of damage to American credibility, uh, certainly here in Canada, uh, certainly internationally. And so that's not going to get, uh, that's not going to get fixed overnight, Scott. Phil Gursky has been with us, president and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Phil, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good one. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Analysts are saying that Canada will probably ban Huawei from its 5G network, though Trudeau may delay the decision as long as possible. It's interesting reading the Toronto Star's take on all of this. Uh, saying he, he's arguably the most uh, most fraught decision he has had to face in the four years of his as prime minister. He must balance his ties with the U.S. and China 
uh, with the fate of three detained Canadians while also facing pressure from intelligence partners and domestic telecom companies. China's envoy to Ottawa, Ottawa has warned of repercussions if Canada bans Huawei. If Trudeau allows Huawei, uh, he'd look like he was bowing to Chinese pressure and would risk alienation of those close allies. You know what? This decision should have been made long before anyone was taken hostage. This decision should have been made when the five eyes all said, or most of them, hey, you know what, we got to look at this. And, and continually, when you read uh, publications like The Star, they'll say, well, just the U.S. and, oh, yeah, Australia and uh, New Zealand. No, there's, there's just a few of the allies that feel this way. Like, we're the only ones. No, no, it's the opposite. The U.S. is behind this. The U.K., France, Germany, all in the same position that we are as, as of now. So really, I mean, my goodness, now it, it, he's created a problem by delaying all of these decisions, by throwing open the doors and saying everybody's welcome, despite these security concerns which other allies have brought forward, and now he finds himself in the predicament that he's in. Now he's got to, gee, what do we do? Do we balance the hostages being held in China with the Huawei 5G network? How do we do this? Well, stop trying to hug communism out of the Communist Party of China and make decisions based on merit, not on the golden goose at the end of, you know, uh, at the end of, uh, I, I guess, the utopian economy as everybody's been viewing China for the last two decades. So the fact that these all have become interwound, that, that's just due to delay. Because prior to these detentions... Trudeau was very evident that he was more than willing to let the Huawei 5G network in, and he wasn't really paying attention to what anybody else said regarding security. And then all of a sudden we realize what doing business with the Communist Party of China is really all about. Then all of a sudden, hmm, guess we can't go there. So, yeah, he's between a rock and a hard place, but that's because he's, that's where he's allowed himself to fall. He should have made this decision with the other five eyes in Europe long ago. And when all of a sudden you start getting threats, if you don't take the network and your people are being held, detained, one on death row, gee, I don't know what we should do here. And now you've got the, now you put yourself in a position where if you do anything now, bye bye Canadians. Sorry about being detained in China. Rough ride. Are you kidding me? How come we need to have Canadians detained and how come we need to hear threats from the Chinese ambassador before we think, you know what, maybe we shouldn't let them build the backbone of our next 5G network. Are you kidding me? How much more proof do you need, Justin? And again, further proof, this guy just doesn't have the capacity to make these calls. He's too busy trying to love everyone. And I'm all for that. I'm all for him being the greatest front man in a rock band. But you got to pay attention to this stuff. You got to come down out of the ivory tower once in a while. To do more than just hand out charity. You've got to understand what the majority of the Canadians are concerned about. And now you've got you, you you've 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 wedged yourself between two superpowers.
Gee whiz, what do we do now? How about when people raise concerns about the security of the 5G network supplied by Huawei? You listen. You don't be the only one on the outside looking in saying, well, I'm not sure about this. But that's what Trudeau does. He plays both sides of a fence. Never really making the call. And that's how we end up where we are. Fighting over a network in order to, to, to gain the release of three hostages. Come on. Well, the Huawei CFO is held up in her $14 bazillion mansion? These people are being interrogated daily? Reports that the lights are left on 24-7? Yeah, let's invite them in to, to, do, our, to do our 5G network. Oh, they're not mean. They're not like that. And now we've got a, a prime minister who's, who's spent the whole time taking selfies between the two, sitting on the fence like he does with every issue, whether it's a pipeline or, or what have you. We're going to talk to everybody. We're going to make sure we take everybody into consideration and then do absolutely nothing. Because problems don't solve themselves. They take a plan. Then you got to roll up your sleeves and do it. We are where we are because of his indecision. Didn't have both oars in the water here. Got caught between a, a U.S. extradition and two superpowers. Gee, I don't know what we're going to do now. Can you imagine now if Justin Trudeau said, yeah, we're going to take the 5G network? You're kidding, right? You would think the events since December have pretty much solidified the fate of the Huawei 5G network. With no help from us, but perhaps their nonstop bullying. Since we answered an international treaty, extradition treaty, and arrested the Huawei CFO. If the reaction, if China's reaction since then hasn't solidified the danger in allowing these people this sort of control, I don't know what does. Well, we've captured two of your diplomats. Another one's on death row. You going to take our network? <laughs> Why are we even having this discussion? And now Trudeau's in, uh, you know, the star headline, Huawei likely faces 5G ban in Canada, security experts says. Oh, no. Oh, no. We're not going to get the Huawei 5G because the communists won't give our people back. No. Are you kidding me? Really? Huawei likely faces a 5G ban? And we were hoping so much that Huawei would get in. We all wanted cheaper phones. Oh, no. Too bad. You're kidding, right? They're about to kill a guy who's already been tried for his crime. 
Drug trafficking. Oh, I know, I know, uh, we don't have a lot of sympathy for a Canadian drug trafficker. No, he was, he was trafficking the poison, the fentanyl that comes out of southern China that is flooding Canadian markets. He was, he was selling that to Australia. So he's not, he's not bringing big, big bad drugs into China and, and, and a national security threat to them and, and harming their people. No, no. The majority of the fentanyl that hits Canadian shores comes from southern China. He was peddling their garbage to the West. We should be sending him to death, not them. But, you know, no one's going to feel sorry for a drug trafficker. Even though he's really just making China rich. By selling the garbage to North America or Australia. Or whoever else is going to buy it. He's tried convicted. Oh no, after this Huawei thing, let's pull him out and try him again. And we're at... Huawei likely faces a 5G ban in Canada? Likely? Well, it depends if they give back the hostages or not. You know. What's for dinner? I can't believe it. I can't believe it. All right, uh, let's bring in Derek Sardo, president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca. He is with us now. Derek, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hello, Scott. So uh, do you think Huawei likely faces a 5G ban in Canada, Derek? (laughs) What do you think of that headline? Headline in the Toronto Star. Huawei likely faces a ban in Canada. Oh, yeah, because they... We just have to be done with it. We just have to say, no, it's simple. It's it's too far. It's too much. I'm a simple IT guy, uh, <laughs> but it but this is such a crazy situation. You know, the Chinese are holding our our imports to them. Uh, you know, they're retaliating with. Uh, I know the canola um, industry. Mm. It's like something like two point five billion dollars. They're holding up things and not letting our Canadian uh, canola in. I I think we just have to say no and and deal with the repercussions of it because I don't believe that we should have. Why uh, are people crying so much yeah. over this? Why, like you just said, there it is. I mean, they're detaining Canadians. I mean, how do we try? The, the issue here is security, and clearly there's an issue with security in regard to them detaining our people. Uh, again, they're not out on bail. They're not going through the court process as we see it. They're just going through their process. So um, how can you even debate whether this is uh, uh, should fly or not from a, security, well, from a security standpoint? You, know, you could check the product to see that, that, that nothing is going to send information back. However, that may be a point in time. With any piece of hardware, we have the ability uh, to to update it with firmwares or software updates. Um, so it may be clean right now when we check it, but if it's controlled by a Chinese company like Huawei, uh, they, they are the ones that are responsible for the updates. And at any point, those updates could go across into our network and put backdoors in there. So I think that the conversation should be ended. I think that uh, Huawei should not be chosen. Why has it and not again, ended? Why is it not ended, Derek? Why are people still worried about this? I mean, Bell, Telus have used some of their stuff. Rogers is using Ericsson. So why is this about? Why is this even a concern? Why are we still talking about it after they're detaining Canadians? 
I don't understand it. And uh, uh, Talis and Bell ha- haven't really put that much infrastructure money into it. Uh, most of the stuff has been done on consignment. So Huawei's given them the equipment to uh, to do their testing. So there won't be, you know, it won't hurt their valuations. Um, and I don't think they'll be out of pocket much to switch to another vendor. Um, many have talked about uh, that, that Huawei has already embedded itself in uh, Canadian society, Canadian culture. They're flooding Canadian universities with all kind of technology money and such. Is it is it too late for this? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I, I really don't like talking about this subject because it, it's it's such a ball of wax. It's uh, I don't I don't really have answers, uh, and I don't think anybody has answers. Huawei is putting money into everything, and I, and we talked about this before. Even into our national game, uh, hockey night in Canada, they're still there. They're always there. Um, they are the number one handset maker in the world. They beat everybody else. They beat all um, uh, all other manufacturers, Samsung and Apple. Um, they're huge. There's no question about it. So, how do you stop it? Well, I think you stop it from um, from un- the public or the Canadian public understanding that what Huawei is and and should I buy the phone or not, and and the, and it comes down to probably price and a lot of people are price conscious when they see an iPhone or a Samsung and they see a Huawei that's got the same specs or better specs and and it's a hundred dollars cheaper or maybe even four hundred dollars cheaper, um, there may be that tendency to 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 buy that device. But I hope that they wouldn't buy that device, knowing what the, this company is is backed, who the company is backed by. Um, what do you think? Do you think that uh, people would make that choice? Well, you know, if it comes to the point of price, we know where that's going to go. I mean, is the phone that exactly. much, is the phone that much superior for the price that it is? I mean, if that's the case, unless you're banning the product. Uh, consumers, like with every other thing made in China that we have around our house, they're going to go for the cheaper price. Is the yeah, qual- so is the that, quality that, there though? Is it just as good? Is it that much better? I don't think it's better. I don't think the quality is um, is uh, even the same. Um, now they are getting better with, with everything. They know they have to compete with these other companies, so the the quality is getting better. Um, but the reputation is really what what stands in its way, I think. And and hopefully Canadians make the right decision and and say. You know, I'll shell out another hundred bucks because I don't want to use Huawei. And who knows if if they have uh, backdoors in the phones? Like, I mean, they could be doing anything with those phones. It's not just the five G network. If they're doing. Uh, you know, spying with those, they could do that with devices as well. Well, again, as you mentioned, they're already involved in and have been here and and involved in in the 4G process, which we have now. Uh, Is that fine to allow that, but the 5G is a a completely different kettle of fish here? Well, I I don't understand that logic, because by that logic, the 4G should be ripped out as well. Um, because, uh, again, like I said earlier, that with the updates, the software updates, they could push any of those updates down to that 4G equipment, too. So the idea of, of that saying, you know, that, that this is, this is going to be existing and we'll leave the existing, but we won't take anything new, that doesn't really make much sense in my, my eyes because they could do the same process. Um, again, we won't need 4G going forward. Everything will become 5G. 
or 6G or 7G or whatever comes out next. But um, we we know that the the amount of internet devices that will be on the the this network is going to be massive. This changes the whole society, where everything is an IP address, and and that's technical, but basically that's an address on the internet. And uh, right down from your toaster to your fridge to your washing machine to your phone to your security devices, whatever you have is going to be IP-enabled. Uh, will not having Huawei involved in the 5G process, and many said it was sheer cost, will, will we see prices soar as a result of that, as, as a result if we use uh, uh, Ericsson or Nokia or, or any of those? I do not think that there will be even a noticeable difference to Canadians if we uh, don't use Huawei for 5G. I don't think that'll even be a concern. Does it slow down the development of this network at all? No, of course not. It's just a choice. I mean, it's, it's a choice between Apple and Microsoft. It's a choice between IBM and Lenovo. It's a choice between HP and uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's a it's a product. It's it, they don't have any special technology that right. that's better than anybody else's. So no, I don't think that's an issue. Is Huawei as a company in Canada feeling the pinch now because of this publicity? Any have you heard any uh, news of that? So I have no information about that. But everybody I have spoken to about it says I would never buy a Huawei phone, or I would never buy a router, or I would never. So I think it will. They will feel a pinch from it for sure. All right, uh, not very well played from a PR standpoint, I'm guessing, either, right, if you're a businessman? Not at all. Not right, and your all. opinions change at this. You didn't feel this way initially, did you? Well, I, 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 no, because, I mean, I want, I like, I'm an IT guy, a simple IT guy. I like product at the right price with the right, but, but all this political BS behind all this is uh, really sour me on this. Derek Sardo has been with us, President. Get people back, right, Scotty? That's it. Derek Sardo, President, Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca to find out more. Derek, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Take care. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.